Expectations rise when we really don't believe what we're capable of. And what I mean by that is when we're fearing something, we're doubting our ability, or we're hoping to play well. The best players don't expect anything. What they believe is that they're ready to compete to achieve what they can. I equate the yips to panic attacks. The primary motivation in those situations is to hurry up and get out of the situation as fast as possible、mm-hmm. and avoid the pain and the stress that you're in. So what happened at that first hole at Augusta, and I give him a tremendous amount of pre-、uh, credit, but if you watch, he went very fast. I mean, the more water we put on something in in a cup, the more pressure is on that cup. Well, if there's holes in the cup, it's going to leak. When the when the tide turns on you, don't try harder. Take a deep breath, evaluate your resources, hit a golf shot that that you know you can hit, and I'm gonna hit it towards the center of the green. Welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I am your host Sean Zock. We've got a great discussion today, and it is just slightly off the beaten PGA Tour path. It involves the mental aspects of golf, something we could all think about. Anyone who has ever played this game knows it involves peak levels of both frustration and elation, sometimes just seconds apart. That's because the sport draws out our competitive desires better than many other things can. Not shockingly, that tornado of emotion is what brings us back for another round of golf, sometimes the same day, and also sends us into golf hibernation for a couple months. It is truly a mental game. Everyone knows that. Joining the Golf.com podcast today to talk about the mental aspects of the game is a man who knows a thing or two about sports psychology. He's Dr. Brett McCabe, a sports and performance psychologist who works at a large SEC school in Alabama, who has had quite a bit of success lately. He's also founder of the Mindside, a sports psychology and performance company. We're here to delve into the idea of golf and the mind and how the two interact when you're on the golf course. Dr. McCabe, how are you doing this fine morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Now this is going to be a little bit different than other podcasts that we've done in kind of analyzing what the sport brings out of a out of a human mind and how the how the two interact. It's it's very compelling in this sport alone, as I said in the intro, because it is a truly mental game. Can you tell me why golfers need to take psychology seriously? Well, it's a good question. So to me, <clears throat> the the way that you think is is kind of like the pilot of this. Fantastic 777 aircraft, right? And we have amazing technology in that aircraft, but you still have to have somebody at the helm who knows how to maneuver that airplane. And I always tell my clients, I don't want a pilot that knows how to fly in only only in good weather. I want a pilot that can fly through thunderstorms, can fly if an engine goes out, that is completely prepared for for the unknown. The mind and the way that we need to train our mind when we're competing in the game of golf is to understand that we don't train to fix problems. And we don't train for our perfect day. Now, unfortunately, what happens is we all remember those days, right? We always go to the range or we go to the putting green to work on something, and it's usually to fix something. Well, I'm leaving this putt, my club face open. I'm I'm doing that. And then when we we compete, we go out there thinking we're going to play our best every single day. We want to play our best, but we have to understand that the way the mind works is that it can help us navigate through the ups and the downs. By helping us stay focused on the task at hand, when we fully engage it and we can let go of that need to fix, and so when we practice, I want us to practice to master. And mastering understands that there's sometimes rough ways along the way, but it's how we persevere and how we work through it, so that that pilot can take that airplane and move it through the rough clouds and get it up into that that smooth cruising altitude. That's what we're trying to do mentally. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I like the analogy because. 
<laughs> I think uh, all of us have gone through quite a bit of turbulence on the golf course to keep that analogy going. Now, you do a lot of work with PGA Tour players, LPGA Tour players. You told me beforehand that uh, I believe it's seven fully exempt player uh, tour players and three um, LPGA Tour players. So that's a lot of professional golf. But why mm-hmm. why is sports like why is sports psychology and and psychology in general is that something that everyone needs to think about every golfer not just the pros? That's a great question, and and I would say that a lot of times your swing coach, the the uh, male or female that you use to work with your swing, when they have when they embody a little bit more of a coaching dynamic versus a technical fixing dynamic, they're embodying many of the principles that we do. On the tour, the reason why they have a team and and we work there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stressors, there's a lot of variability, but there's a very fine line between great and good. Mm-hmm. And the difference between great and good is making the cut or miss and and winning. So we're always looking for the edge and trying to eliminate any kinds of can't really eliminate doubts, but we're trying to put them in the proper box and 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 work through them. But every golfer can embody the skills of practice, which is understanding how to practice when you go to the range. And and my philosophies on that is when you go to the range, the average golfer walks out there with a wedge and starts hitting chips. Now, this is tour players, too. I mean, I watch this with my my tour flicks. They walk out there with a range and they start hitting shots with a wedge. Well, they're usually not very loose. And the wedge has, you know, has a sole on it that's been ground or built to work through the turf in a certain way. And it's the shortest club. So, you know, particularly a lot of people start out with a sand wedge or a lob wedge. And so you're hitting shots and the average player starts hitting shots and and then they start increasing intensity, but it doesn't take long to start judging the quality of the shot. And when you start judging the quality of the shot, you start making alterations and accommodations in your swing to make it do what you want it to do. And yet you're still not loose. Yeah. I was a, I was a college pitcher. I was fortunate enough to be on some championship teams and um, national championship and conference championship teams. And that's not what pitchers do. Okay. Pitchers understand when they w- walk out on the field that before they get on the mound in the bullpen, they're going to get their body fully loose first. They're not testing their slider on flat ground in right field. They may break a couple off, but it's just simply to break up scar tissue in their elbow. Then they move into the bullpen and they work their mechanics to kind of ingrain them. Then they go into precision. Well, I want my golfers, and every golfer can understand this, when you go to the range, start with something like an eight iron and just hit shots. Yeah, And one of my tour players calls it long toss. We're just going to hit shots. We're not going to care where it goes, and we're not going to care how it gets there, but we're going to get the blood moving in the body. We're going to break up scar tissue. And then um, then after we've, we're loose and we've got a nice little lather going, then we're going to set up and we're going to hit balls focusing on one or two of our most important mechanical things that we do. Now, if our practice sessions are longer, those stations, I call them foundations, those foundations can can stay there for a longer period of time. And so it might be, for instance, for me, one of the things that I need to do when I when I hit golf balls, I get quick in my transition. So I need to set up balls and work on not getting quick in my transition, actually staying back and allowing the, you know, to me, my analogy, even though it's not technically correct, is to think that the handle's leading. Doesn't mean I'm dragging it. It just that's just analogy that helps me. So I need to be I need to hit ten or fifteen balls just feeling that with some different clubs. After I've ingrained that with not really worrying where the ball goes. Then I'm going to move into precision, what I call performance practice. Now I'm going to work through my routine, and I'm going to have shots, and I'm going to hit with purpose, and I'm going to let go of that idea of handle dragging or, or pulling the handle through or whatever I want to think of. Um, 
I'm not a handle dragging golf coach. That's not what I'm saying, but I know that's a buzzword in that industry. But <laughs> um, I, I want to I want to just hit shots and see them with purpose. So I'm transitioning the mind from getting loose to getting ingrained to becoming free. Now I can have a little thought in my head, but I still have to have a target in mind. And that's where we practice it. Too many golfers don't practice it on the range. Then they go out on the golf course and they start adding things that they've never practiced. Mm-hmm. So my tour players, I start them all with how they practice. That can go from anybody who's a 24 handicap to a plus four at your club to learn to practice better. You can do it with each facet of your game. So I do think that every player can learn from the principles. Um, it's understanding how to deal with when it doesn't go well for you on the golf course. Um, you know, you're out there and you're playing well and all of a sudden it hits. Um, and it's just not going well. And it's what I call a riptide. And it's fortunate enough to have a nice article in, in golf magazine last month talking about when emotions take you over. And, and it's some of the skills of what you do when that happens, which is, you know, it's like swimming off the coast in a riptide. When the, when the tide turns on you, don't try harder. Take a deep breath, mm. evaluate your resources, hit a golf shot that's, you know, that you know you can hit. You know, so it might be, look, I'm going to hit this three-quarter eight iron. And maybe calling for a hard wedge, but I'm going to hit this three-quarter eight iron, and I'm going to hit it smooth, and I'm going to pick a clear target, an external target, and I'm going to hit it towards the center of the green. The best players know that when trouble hits, it's not them. It's a trouble scenario that they need to learn to work through. I think everybody in life and in golf can learn to do that. I like that. Now, the riptide analogy, you've got some 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 good analogies that you're using here in order to not get swept under, you're talking about kind of freeing up your mind or loosening up your mind at the same time of loosening up your body. And I think that's something that, as you said, not enough people actually loosen up their mind. You're talking about a warm up. Is it okay if you have 15 minutes? Can you warm up? Like, I feel like this is something that is a built in half an hour warm up. If you don't have that amount of time, is it, is it more difficult to, to compact that warm up time in which you need to loosen up your mind? No, no question. Not a problem. You can do some, um, you know, if you, if you do a review of golf magazine and look at some of the fitness articles, there are quick warmups, whether it's deep knee squats or running in place a few seconds, then hit five or 10 balls. You know, I would hit two balls focusing on something, hit five or 10 balls, hitting for some targets. Then I'd go to the putting green and I hit some chips and I'd hit a couple five footers and let's rock and roll. Look, I work a lot. And so there's a lot of times I get to the golf course 10 minutes before tee time. So, I've got a warm up that I do, which is getting out of the car I, and I walk over, I hit some, I hit some pitches, I hit some chips, I hit some putts and I'm ready to go. And I just don't expect much. And what happens? I end up playing great. So as a pitcher, I was a reliever. We always had to know if we knew we were going in in the eighth and the, when it's the third inning, we'd had a different warm up than if we're sitting there and all of a sudden coach goes, go get loose. You're going in. And you may have literally 15 balls in the bullpen. So we had to be ready before we were ready. But it's a mindset, and the mindset is is letting go of the need to do anything and trusting that we are capable of doing anything if we free our mind of the conflict. That's That sounds like a, a calming technique to free your mind. And, and you talked earlier about preparation techniques on the range, but in regards to to calming techniques, when you're on the course, you said – you, to, you try to you pick your smooth three quarter eight iron. I don't think it's easy to get people to think that way because I think people think way too much about the score that they're trying to either make through eighteen holes or they're trying to 
get up and down from 90 yards when when their match is at that point that they need to do that is is it very difficult to coach people into thinking about what is expected of them on each hole and not about what I can do on this hole what a great word you use expected let's talk about expectations for a minute so if a tour player is playing in a stroke play event over 72 holes even if they're near the lead and they hit a bad shot they're not trying to be miraculous they're going to they're going to really mitigate the big number so they may they may take their lump on the on the on that hole from 90 yards hit it 15 feet left and give themselves a shot at trying to make the putt they don't, they'll make a bogey, they'll move on the next hole, and they're going to play from there. And yes, it may hurt them overall, but they also know they have more holes left. But expectations are a killer. Expectations rise when we really don't believe what we're capable of. And what I mean by that is when we're fearing something, we're doubting our ability, or we're hoping to play well. The best players don't expect anything. What they believe is that they're ready to compete to achieve what they can. They believe that they can have great results. They just don't expect it. And expectations, it's a loaded word because it means it's based on something you are or something you have done that the results should be given to you. It's it's an entitlement. It doesn't work. Now, is it hard to get an athlete, a player, a a weekend golfer who's walking, who's struggling to say, wait a minute here, let's reset, let's just play here in. Happens to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm out there and I'm like, I'm going to hit this really close so I can say par. It's like, wait a minute here. I'm not going to try to do the miraculous when maybe the miraculous isn't capable right now. Let me play my average. Let, and, and, and I think we have to remember that as golfers is that our average, if we, can, if we make our average better and better, then that opens up the door for better and better scores. I hear this all the time from my junior golfers. They'll come in and they'll say, yeah, I'm not playing that good. I said, well, what would you shoot in the tournament? 76. Okay. Well, we look at their stats program. What do you think their scoring average is in a tournament? 76. I said, why are you upset? Well, I didn't, I didn't break par today. Your average is a 76 in competition. Let's try to get your average to a 74, 75. Yes, I want you to shoot lower numbers. But if you're, if you're expecting to shoot lower numbers, then that's when you make those decisions like you're talking about, is that you're trying to save things because you don't believe you're capable of working through trouble. You have to make it perfect right now. And that's a lot of times, that's fear avoidance and avoidance of big numbers. I don't want anybody to avoid anything. I want you to play smart, strategic, and aggressive golf, which is, that's my target. It may be hitting my, my third shot in on a par four, but I have to be aggressive to this target for what this shot is demanding of me, not expecting to hit it close. Before Brett and I continue, I just wanted to make you all aware of some other cool podcasts here at Sports Illustrated. The NFL Draft is finally here. First round kicks off tonight. My Green Bay Packers need some help. Well, Sports Illustrated has a new mini-series that takes everyone much deeper than any big board. It's called Draft Season, where each pick is a player and each player has a story. The latest episode features Penn State quarterback Christian Hackenberg and his experience convincing teams that he can be the face of their franchise. Find Draft Season on iTunes, Google Play Music, or at si.com slash draft season. And with that, we'll get back to my discussion with Brett McCabe. And what you're talking about really sounds to me like just approaching every single shot as its own entity and not as uh, not as much about um, just a combination of of progress towards a whole but yep now well is it hard (laughs) is that hard or what I mean look I struggle with it too we're recording this today and I'm in my member guest we played our practice round yesterday I played decent I didn't make a lot of birdies and and I'm sitting there going this is crazy 
this is crazy. I mean, like, and I was, I started finding myself tinkering with my mechanics on the golf course. Well, what do you think that went? How do you think that went? Not very well. And I remember sitting there, I turned to my partner, who's my father-in-law, and I said, will you remind me to be external instead of internal when you see me doing that? Because that's what I tell my players. Let's be external. Let's pick targets. Let's, let's see the shots and let's get after them. Let's not think how we're going to do it. But I struggle with that too. This is what I do for a living. This is what I teach. <laughs> I still struggle with it. The game is hard. You asked a question at the very beginning. Why is golf so demanding physically? Because it's a game that has such a razor-fine difference. And the, the glory is so great. It's such a wonderful feeling when you sit in that clubhouse afterwards and you played that round. And it was – you made those putts and everything was great. And it is so frustrating <laughs> when you know what you're capable of and yet you can't achieve it. Mm-hmm. And we, we wear like a band of, of, of honor when we do great. And we, we, you know, we wear it like a badge of shame when we don't. Truth of the matter is the game, the game is tough. It's one of the toughest games. It's what draws every athlete from every other sport into golf. Yeah. And it's what frustrates them beyond belief. I, I think we, we discussed this the other day, actually, because Jerry Rice, Hall of Fame uh, football player, yep. he came in and, and did a, an interview segment on Golf Live and talks about how he, he got committed and, and addicted almost to the game of golf. And I, I think you just spoke to that because you, you see these super athletes that have been just amazing in about every avenue of their athletic lives. They see the golf course, they get on there and think it's going to be easy. They realize how damn difficult this game is and they get addicted to it because they're so damn competitive, uh, which Absolutely. is, it's, it's fun to see because, because I love this game. You love this game and we all kind of go through the same thing. Now I'm interested if, uh, if we can talk for a couple minutes, maybe about the yips. Um, and I know that, it's it's a combination of many things when someone might have the yips, both what they're thinking about and then how they their hand eye coordination and as well as their their muscle functions. But when you think when I bring up the idea of the yips, what does that mean to you? Um, it means a, a very difficult time for the person going through it and a very fun time for me who can teach you through it. How about that? <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, the reason the reason I'm saying that the yips I equate the yips to panic attacks. Okay, so let me describe. When, a client, when I was in a, as a clinical psychologist, when I was in practice, and I don't do that anymore, but um, when somebody would come to you with a panic attack, they're usually a high-achieving person. So you got this executive, male or female, who comes in and is like, Doc, I'm sitting there, and I think I'm having this heart attack. It just comes out of nowhere. I was in the meeting. All of a sudden, I'm sweating. My heart's racing. I just want to escape it. Okay, and then after one or two panic attacks, if you've ever had a panic attack, it's absolutely it's an absolutely terrifying experience. The brain just goes into override of fear avoidance and protection and the shots of adrenaline throughout the body. And then what happens is those folks start fearing the next one because they come out of the blue. All right. That's, that's kind of the diagnostic criteria is that panic attacks have to come out of the blue. And some, you can say, well, I have a panic attack. So I'm afraid to fly. But for most of them, you're sitting there all of a sudden the body just overrides. That's how I look at yips. I know there's some discussion out in the literature about being a focal dystonia and a movement, you know, in, improper jerking of the hands. And I'm sure that's the case in 10 to 15, 20% of folks who have that. But to me, I look at it from another perspective is that when a player has the yips, whether it's chipping or putting or driver or whatever, the primary motivation in those situations is to hurry up and get out of the situation as fast as possible mm-hmm. and avoid the pain and the stress that you're in. 
So when you step into a putt and you're, you're struggling with three footers and you got the, a yippy move, your fear avoidance and your overwhelming adrenaline in the body is causing the muscle tension and it's causing you to make a movement that is not free because your focus is not on the target anymore. Your focus becomes so internally focused that you're overriding and choking down the motor system. That's why you see really bad strokes. Well, I think one of the other things that happens in putting is we tell folks who have the yips, well, make sure that you accelerate through the ball, which may be one of the worst things that we can do (laughs) because now we're giving them more focus on a mechanical move. And what's frustrating about the yips is I can take them, even tour players, I can take them to the putting green and say, I want you to drop 10 balls around from three feet and they knock in every single one of them. Why? They're in control. They're in control of their feelings there and there's not a major significant outcome. That's what they're fearing. And most of them, 95% of people, just like in panic, there's a fear of embarrassment or fear of loss of control. So what I try to tell folks who, and this is kind of a different mentality, and it started with me working with youth gymnasts who get, they get yippy when it comes to very tough tumbling passes. Hmm. So they won't throw like a round off back handspring with a tuck. Okay. So they, they'll, they'll bail on it. And so what I told them is I said, name that fear that comes in. And one of the most common names is like a Bill or a Bob. And I say, Bob's here. Okay, Bob is over-controlling us now. And so what happens is our focus comes on trying to get rid of, for the athlete before we teach him, is to try to get rid of the fear, try to get rid of that feeling, and hurry up and get out of that circumstance. And we're hoping that all of a sudden we're going to have a breakthrough and the angels are going to sing, we're going to be cured of this problem. doesn't work like that. So what I try to get them to do is to understand that when Bob shows up, we have increased arousal and increased anxiety time. Be aware of it first. Don't fight it. Now, acknowledge that Bob is here, and then remember how we put Bob back in the box, which is let's take some deep breaths, and let's remember that Bob can't kill us. It may make us really uncomfortable, but if we give all of our attention to Bob, we're taking our attention away from the the shot at hand, the tumbling pass at hand, the throw at hand. So what I have them do is breathe it out, put Bob in the box, and then say, okay, look, I'm willing to hit this shot to the best of my ability. I'm willing to accept the outcomes. Now, the embarrassment issue, the thoughts that happen to us when we're embarrassed about missing short putts or short chips, we, the only way we can do that is to have a almost a cavalier attitude. I really don't care. Okay. They love me for who I am. And I know that sounds crazy, but even my tour players have to do that. So the gallery's not laughing. Okay, They're feeling sympathetic for you. They're yeah. feeling empathy for you. They're not laughing. So why don't we just say, I can accept good or bad. I'm going to get up here and hit this putt. And even on my tour players, you know, I have them, they, they name them different things. They're like, they'll text me and say, Bob was here today. <laughs> and I'm like, how did you handle it? I stepped away. I took a couple deep breaths. I wiped my face and I stepped back in and I got focused. And I'm like, well, how'd you do? Well, I made the putt. I'm like, hey, there you go. So it's about refocusing the body away from this emergency fearful position and giving and telling them that one, it's not going to kill them. And by naming it, you give it kind of an object, objective look at it. And now they can segment it in their brain and move it out. It's the same thing with panic. The number one way to treat panic attacks, if there's not something other medically causing them, is allow them to know that they're not going to die in it and show them that in a panic attack that they're under, they're, they're still under control. It's the exact same thing with yips. That is fascinating. Uh, I really like that. It, it, it makes sense uh, just at the outset, and especially in the way that you described it, naming the problem and actually objectifying it. Uh, and you know what it does? It also, it moves it away from me being an idiot. Yeah. Me being a failure. It's like, there's this, 
Bob's here. And I, it started with an, with an 11 year old gymnast, as I told you, and she called me and she said, I can't do Randolph. And the next day she texted me, she goes, doc, I, Bob was there. And, and I told Bob that Bob doesn't own me. And I said, well, what'd you do? She goes, I, I, I stepped back. I took a deep breath. And I said, watch this, Bob. And she went and she nailed it. Now, it goes away for a period of time, and then it comes back. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what did you do? She goes, well, I know what to do when Bob comes back. Do I get it every time? No, but I can, I can overcome it. And she goes, I'm so proud of myself because I faced it. And then I started using it with golfers, like high school golfers. And what I found was this amazing, not every time, I mean, sometimes there is a mechanical problem. Usually yips do start because there is a mechanical flaw that you've been able to overcome for a while. Uh-huh. So, you know, there, there, it's, never, it's never the smoothest. Of, there's usually something going wrong. But we can accommodate a lot of times. We can overcome it. When the anxiety gets high, what I say, it's like when the water pressure gets high, more pressure falls back on that the system that's trying to hold the water. That's what happens in the body. That's fascinating. And I know that there are, at least uh, what we saw on the first hole at Augusta National, the Masters this year, there's, there's definitely yips to be seen on tour, unfortunately. Uh, but there's something to be learned from that, especially for someone who's dealing with that and, and can't quite yeah. get over the, uh, the embarrassment and especially you shouldn't really be embarrassed. You're playing, if you're playing with your, uh, you're playing with your, your Saturday foursome. Absolutely. But we, but we all want approval. Okay. Yeah. So what happened at that first hole at Augusta and I give him a tremendous amount of pre- uh, credit, but if you watch, he went very fast mm-hmm. during that time. The caddy was in a shock. I mean, the caddy was probably thinking, what do I do? <laughs> the best thing the caddy can do is go, Hey, come here. Uh, but now that's going to prolong you in the fearful environment. Mm-hmm. But that's actually the best thing is to slow down, get focused on an external. Let's come on. We got this. Now go. Well, it's beautiful about us. Players all came out and they were, you know, very sympathetic and, and people get it. Look, it's a hard game. You know, the pressure thing that I was telling about before with water, I mean, the more water we put on something in, in a cup, the more pressure is on that cup. Well, if there's holes in the cup, it's going to leak because the pressure is going to push against that outside. I mean, it's trying to move and expand. So it's a hard game. So what we have to do is just understand, look, I'm giving it the best I got. What he did at that first hole is he just kept going really, really fast. So he never gave it time to refocus the mind, refocus the process. And almost hit, he needed to hit like a little reset button. No, and but he's done great sense. And, and the way he handled it was brilliant. Before we continue, uh, one more podcast referral for your NFL desires. On his podcast, On the Clock, SI's Chris Burke has been tracking the NFL draft for months now. It's all leading up to this moment. For the hardcore draft fans, you cannot miss these final episodes. Search On the Clock on iTunes, Stitcher, or now on Google Play Music. And with that, we'll go back to my conversation with Brett McCabe. It's, it's just too bad. One hole, I'll get you. That's how this game works. Now, another thing that happened at Augusta National was how the Masters uh, was going to be remembered is that Jordan Spieth, uh, 12 hole, quadruple bogey in regards to that and you don't have to go into specifics all that much but Jordan Spieth there's going to be a psychological uh some kind of complex when he reaches the 12th green at Augusta next year generally speaking how do you get someone to succeed in the same scenario in which they've failed especially on such a memorable scale if he goes out there to play the 12th hole next year to not do what he did before or to try to slay that dragon, yeah, then he's giving more power to that hole than what that hole deserves. And that doesn't mean that's not the one of the greatest par threes, maybe the greatest par three in the history of golf, but is to say, look, it's a new year. It's 2017. I still played great. Danny Willett played phenomenally. Um, 
you know, that hole is hard. The mistake that he made was how he went through his decision-making after that, but probably mm-hmm. because coming off of two bogeys, his heart rate was up, his adrenaline was up, and he was moving into a riptide, which I think that's what we saw was a riptide. Bad decision-making that was compounded by difficult execution. So um, the as opposed to saying, you know, look, I'm going to hit my, my second ball into the back bunker and get it up and down, make a five, let's move on. So, you know, which you've still been fine for. But I guess my point is, is that when he goes there next week, or next year, excuse me, and he, he steps out on that grounds, if his thing is about dealing with number 12, he's missing the point of the game. He needs to go into it and say, it got me last year. I am vulnerable to both greatness and struggles. I'm not preventing either, and I'm not over-controlling both. So I'm going to walk out there and say, this is a new year. I'm going to play my golf shot. Now, if he's in the final group and he gets through 12, do you think when he gets on 13 after making par, there's going to be some relief? <laughs> sure. But let's talk about the relief of emotion. The emotion of relief is a trap because it means you, you're avoiding something you fear. I would rather him go and do it when he makes par birdie next year on the fourth round with a chance to win the tournament to feel accomplished. Like I faced the dragon and, and I worked through it. I didn't overwhelm my resources to do it. That's a great hole. And I just, I just dominated that hole. That's how I want him to see it. Mm-hmm. Knowing how he thinks, I would think that's how he's going to be. Definitely a mentally savvy guy. Jordan Spieth is. Whew. And Unbelievable. Uh, that's part of the reason for his greatness. Now, before I let you go, a couple, just a couple quick things in regards to like memory removal. Is that a thing at all for you in your work? <laughs> trying to get people to remove uh, or is it just a pro- is that part of the process? You know, if I could get that tool from Men in Black, I think it would be great. <laughs> <clears throat> but I tell folks all the time, if you want to remove the bad thoughts, then you got to be willing to remove the good ones too. Okay. So let's accept them both. So are the bad memories. Um, we can't control thought. Thoughts pop in our head. They're like clouds. They're like popcorn. I mean, they just pop in. Okay. It's when we give them meaning that we give them power by saying, don't think that way. Got to think differently. Don't listen to that. That's giving it power. You know, if you're standing on the tee and you're like, don't hit this in the water, it just pops in your head. You're not a failure or a loser because that happened. Under pressure, you're going to have more of those thoughts. What you're better off to do is say, I hear it. I accept it. Now, what do I want to do? And you don't give it power. To get rid of bad memories, memories are what define us. It's, it's physiologically in the brain the how memories are stored. Memories are better stored with emotion. And what's one of the most, one of the strongest emotions there is, is fear and pain. So those emotions and those memories are always going to be there. What I want people to understand is that we are defined by one, how we succeed and how we work through struggles. So instead of what I want them to do is reframe that difficulty and ask them what you learn from it. It could be very painful. I've lost a lot of games in my life and they're very painful, but you have to learn through them because if we go out there to prevent them, we're not playing the game at hand. We're trying to rewrite the past. Athletes try to rewrite the past all the time and try to write a better future, and they forget living in the moment. We have to live in the moment on a daily basis. I like that. And one last question for you. I, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin, and recently um, they had a quarterback named Joel Stavi who went into his senior year saying, I've dealt with the yips as a thrower, as a quarterback, on like, you know, he'd sail like a five-yard pass 10 feet high, and he would leave the 15-yard pass 10 feet short. Uh, are there levels of other sports, uh, psychology and other sports, that you think are very easy to apply to golf? I know golf, 
people think of it as a very unique mental game, but it's not, uh, I would tend to think you would say. Are there other sports that you think lend themselves? Uh, or is it more just a general uh, psychology that you use across the board? No, I mean, I think there's specifics. Look, in the, I was a baseball player at LSU, as I mentioned before, which, by the way, we open with you guys in Lambeau Field this year. <laughs> yeah, I know. Football, so it should be a good one. We'll, we'll, have to, we'll, we'll have to have a talk before that. <laughs> um, the, um, but, but baseball was well-known for the throwing yips with Steve Sachs and Chuck Knobloch and Mackie Sasser and a variety of athletes, and, and Steve Sachs ended up pretty much derailing his career. They moved Knobloch to the outfield, but um, it happens. One of the things that you got to remember about yips is it usually happens on the easiest, whatever sport. Free throws are a great example, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got uh, DeAndre Jordan, yeah. who really is not a good free throw shooter. Does he have bad mechanics? No, because I've seen him shoot. Now, he's not a great shooter. He's a great physical presence, but he can shoot. But what happens is you get to the free throw line, kind of probably his head is spinning, and I'm sure they've tried 47,000 tricks for him. The better thing to do is get him to embrace it and say, okay, look, this is where I am right now. Let's work through this. And Let's try to increase percentage in two and three percentages at a time. So, yes, there are general skills and there are general actions that we can do in every sport. Um, and, yes, they are specific to those sports. But we can also learn from what other athletes do in their sport to be successful. So if I'm watching a downhill racing, I can tell you if they're going 65, 70 miles an hour coming down a mountain, they're not thinking about where they place their hands. They're looking at the gates, and they're not looking at the next gate. More than likely, they're looking two and three gates down and allowing their body to flow. So if a basketball player is at the free throw line, um, there's things that we can learn from that. So I'm always trying to learn from multiple different sports. Um, and, and there are athletes who do great things in some sports, and then you know, we, can, we can learn from them and try to apply. And sometimes it works for our current athletes, sometimes it doesn't. But the most important thing is human performance is maximized when we embrace the desire to achieve it and then we do whatever it takes to get there. That's a common theme. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Dr. McCabe for your time this morning. That was great. Uh, and a, a very good in-depth look at what it takes to calm your mind, to handle your memories, your fears and all your emotions, uh, especially on the golf course, but in other athletic avenues. Thanks for coming on. And, uh, we'll have to talk about Wisconsin LSU very soon. You got it. Let me know anytime, man. Well, that's it for the golf.com podcast today. Great talk about golf psychology with Dr. Brett McCabe of the mind side. Fascinating stuff. That's probably worth a three hour lecture, not just a 35 minute podcast. Nonetheless, major thanks to him for joining us and thanks to you for listening, but you're not done yet. Please ease my psyche and rate our podcast. A uh, five-star rating would, would make me very happy. Those ratings mean a lot, not only to me, but also to the podcast. We love doing them, and that'd be a tiny bit of support that you can give us and is much appreciated on our end. Beyond that, let me know your thoughts on the show or if you have any pressing golf ideas, questions you'd like me and other hosts to tackle. Tweet me at Sean underscore Zock, that's S-E-A-N underscore Z-A-K, or at golf underscore com, G-O-L-F underscore C-O-M. I'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.